Good morning, everybody. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you this morning, representing Westside Baptist Church in this Cork Carry Project Sunday. Um, I'm originally from Scotland. Um, this is another one of us, great. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about making a rugby joke, but um, you know, I was, you know, I'm almost considering becoming Irish after last night, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Um, and my wife, Miriam, is here. Uh, she's from Cork, so as everyone knows, emigrants from Cork eventually all come back. Uh, so we have four kids, Nathan, Eliana, Sammy, and Bella, who are all here. Um, I serve as one of the elders in Westside Baptist Church, and in my spare time, I work as an architect in the city. Um, I was thinking about um, the connections between our churches and I couldn't pass over the very obvious connection between our two churches, Passage West and West Side. There's a phrase that people use out that direction, it's West is best. Um, but seriously, on, on behalf of West Side, um, I want to acknowledge your generosity to us as a church in supporting and encouraging us. We currently don't have any staff or a full-time pastor, and your support in sending Andrew and Steve um, on, I think it was six Sundays over the last year, um, to help with preaching and equipping our church. It's really appreciated, and we're really thankful for you and very grateful. Um, a little bit about us. We're a church of um, about, I don't know, 50 to 70 people that meet on a Sunday. Uh, we have a wide catchment around the town of Bandon. Um, we're we are excited to be starting up um, our midweek youth groups after the summer. Um, I think we have four different ones from ages 0 to 18. Um, we're thankful for many young families in our church um, and the opportunity to have junior church as well and to grow young people in their faith and knowledge to reach out to others as well. We're thankful for small groups who attend midweek Bible studies and um, who are hungry to grow and, and for fellowship. We'd love for these small groups to grow, um, so please pray for that. Um, because we have no staff or pastor or full-time pastor, um, there are many pastoral needs in our church that, that can't be met or are overlooked. Um, but one blessing that has come from these circumstances is a growth in interdependence as a body. And please pray that this flourishes into a culture of mutual pastoring and love for each other as disciples. And please do also pray for a full-time worker to come alongside us in Westside. There are many needs and opportunities um, to grow and deepen the kingdom. Uh, so pray for open doors, for existing people to serve more, and for new servants from outside to come alongside us. So this is my first Sunday here with you in, in Passage Baptist Church, and I was thinking about how to share, what to share um, from, from God's Word with you. I was thinking about how we are, on the face of it, an established church. We heard about a very old church, Cork Baptist Church, but we are not quite as old, but we do have decades of history. And how you, a young church plant, have shown concern and support for us during a difficult time. So I thought I would encourage you with some blessings of the kingdom this morning that we share. I pray that you be blessed with grief and hardship. May you be blessed with persecution, with insults, slander, and mourning. That's how things work in God's kingdom, right? 
You bless us, we bless you. But rather than stroking your ego or making you feel good about yourselves, I want to remind you this morning what the blessings of the kingdom of God actually look like. In this room right now, the force of gravity is pulling us all downwards, everything towards the center of the earth. It's constant, predictable, and it affects everything. It holds all the chairs you're sitting on neatly on the ground. But imagine if gravity suddenly inverted. Instead of pulling us all downwards, gravity flipped to pulling us all upwards. Imagine what a change that would make to this room. We would still occupy the same space, but we'd all be drawn in the opposite direction. Well, that's a little like what the Beatitudes are. Jesus teaching about God's kingdom. Jesus has just called his first disciples and with great crowds around him, he begins to teach them what the kingdom of heaven is like. His, his teaching inverts the normal order of our thinking. And I'll be honest, it's a bit strange. Look again at Matthew chapter 5. They just don't make sense, do they? They're jarring, the opposite of our normal expectation of things. Those who are poor, in mourning, hungry, they're the opposite to blessed or happy in our understanding. But again and again, Jesus teaches his disciples, you have heard it said, one thing, but I tell you something different. You may think the self-confident, hedonistic, assertive people are successful and happy, but Jesus here blesses the meek, grieving, persecuted people, calling them happy and blessed. I would love to unpack some of the meaning of each of these blessings with you, but this morning I just want to focus our attention on the last one, and in particularly on verse 12, which in many ways is the application of the Beatitudes. It tells us how these blessings should make us feel. So here we go. Let's look again at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets. This is perhaps the most jarring of all the Beatitudes. It doesn't make earthly sense. Why does Jesus call the persecuted blessed? More than that, why does he instruct an emotion? Rejoice and be glad. Another version says leap for joy. Well, we generally use the word persecution to describe Christians or other churches who live in countries where they're at risk of harm for their Christian faith. And although I don't want to diminish the incredible hardships of those Christians that those Christians endure, we think particularly of the Armenian Christians in Azerbaijan at the moment. But I think Jesus intended the meaning of this word, persecution, to be far wider than that. Jesus actually spells out what persecutions look like. People insult you. Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
People hate you. They exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And in this context, it's important to stress the reasons for persecution. They're for righteousness' sake, and they're because of the Son of Man, Jesus. Jesus is not blessing anyone who's been ill-treated for any reason. It's important not to read our own circumstances into the Bible. The question is, how can Jesus' disciples rejoice and be glad if they are being persecuted? How is that even possible? Well, Jesus gives us two answers in verse 12, two reasons they are to rejoice. Number one, because great is your reward in heaven. And number two, because the prophets before you were persecuted in exactly the same way. So Jesus' disciples can rejoice despite persecution and hardships because, number one, the hope of reward in heaven. This makes sense. We get the idea of delayed gratification. We put up, some, put up with something now, and we get the reward in the future. That's fine. And Luke's account of the Beatitudes brings this out in the contrast between the present and the future. Luke says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. We have a future hope in heaven that no matter how bad life gets, we know that we'll all be made, it will all be made right in the kingdom of heaven. But what I want to show you this morning is that the second reason Jesus gives us is the only way to rejoice here and now in our present hardships. Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus tells his disciples to rejoice when people hate you, slander you, and shun you because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Why? How can we rejoice in this? Because this is exactly how the Old Testament prophets were treated. Well, let's ask the question, what, what happened to the Old Testament prophets? Why does Jesus draw a line from the prophets to his current disciples? And I think, by, I think we can take the prophets to mean God's Old Testament messengers, those people whose lives and words are recorded to make known the God they served. And under that heading, let's think back through biblical history and ask the question, what happened to the prophets? How were they treated? Let's start at the beginning. Adam and Eve's son, Adam and Eve's second son, Abel, his heart was to follow God and to please him with his offering. But he was murdered by his brother. Why? Because Cain hated his brother's righteousness. Joseph, although being chosen by God and given prophetic dreams, was rejected by his brothers, thrown into prison, sold as a slave, and was misrepresented, lied about, and imprisoned. Moses, Moses took on the reproach and disdain of his slave people rather than the prestige of an Egyptian prince. And as God's chosen leader, he was repeatedly rejected by grumbling Israelites. 250 Israelite chiefs stood in opposition against him personally. And at one point, even his brother and sister stood against him. Caleb and Joshua. 
12 spies were sent out into the promised land and returned to report to the people what the God's promised land was like. 10 of them discouraged the people to say, there's no hope, we don't have a chance. But Joshua and Caleb stood up to encourage the people and to have faith in, the God, in God's promises for their good, despite the circumstances. But the people rejected their message and they even threatened to stone them. The nation of Israel did settle in the land God promised them, but soon the people rejected God and were unfaithful again. The Lord raised up judges who saved the Israelites from foreign oppression, yet they did not listen to the judges who saved, uh, they kept following after other gods. Time and time again, when the judge died, it says they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods. One example was Gideon. Under the instruction of the Lord, he tore down the false altars to Baal. And in response, the Israelites of his town came to his family and threatened to kill him. Samuel, when the time, when the time uh, then we come to the time when the Israelites rejected God's divine rule and wanted a personal king like the nations around him. The prophet, Samuel, warned them that a king would not be all they, they imagined, and he pleaded with them that God was enough for them. But he was ignored, he was rejected, and they anointed King Saul. Moving on, God's messenger Elijah found himself one man against 450 false prophets of Baal. He was called the troubler of Israel by the king who hated him. He stood alone with his God-given message to a people who had abandoned the commandments of the Lord. Isaiah similarly faced rejection of his message to trust God for salvation. His warnings of the coming invasion and exile as judgment for their false religion, their pride and their unfaithfulness were rejected. Likewise, Jeremiah warned the people that God's judgment in the form of exile was coming because of their unfaithfulness. God actually told Jeremiah in chapter 7, when you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Well, the judgment came and 2 Kings 17 records the state of God's people at the time of exile. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets, but they would not listen and they were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors. Again and again, God's messengers, the Old Testament disciples, were ignored, ridiculed, threatened because, they, because of the message that they spoke. The message God gave them caused them to be persecuted. Again and again, the nation of Israel rejected God's messengers, rejected God's message. And now we see Jesus here in Matthew 5 sending his disciples out with the same message, warning people to flee from judgment for the evil in their hearts and turn to the righteous God for salvation. And here in Matthew, Jesus draws a line from the Old Testament prophets to the disciples in front of him. 
In the same way as most people rejected, ignored, ridiculed, threatened the righteous prophets, so they will treat you. And that's not the end of the parallel. Jesus Christ himself spoke the same message as the Lord had been communicating to all his people, to his people throughout all the Old Testament. Jesus spoke the same message. And what does Jesus say in Luke 13? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who, sent, who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Jesus came in fulfillment of all God's promises to the people of Israel, that if they turn from their wicked ways, turn to him, that he would come and gather them and be their God and they would be his people. Jesus came in fulfillment of that promise and he was rejected, persecuted, and executed by his own people. There's a story in Matthew 20 um, of a landlord and he leased out his vineyard property to some tenants and then went away abroad. When, when the time came to receive some of the produce from his tenants, he sent, messengers after mes he sent messenger after messenger to collect his rent. And each time a messenger arrived, rather than listening to them, they decided to beat up, kill, or stone them. Finally, the master sent his own son to the unruly tenants. Astonishingly, they thought they could take the son's inheritance and keep the leased vineyard for themselves. So they killed the son of the master whose vineyard they were leasing. The message delivered to the tenants was unchanged, and their hostility towards the messengers, and by implication, the, the landlord, the master, it grew and grew. Well, the prophets in the Old Testament are like those messengers sent to the tenants of the vineyard. They ultimately had the same message as the son who was sent in the end. The prophet's message was not collecting rent, but it was offering salvation. But do you see that there's an unbroken line of God's messengers being rejected and persecuted because of the message they bring throughout the Old Testament and ultimately including Jesus himself. And now, here in Matthew 5, Jesus blesses his current disciples looking forward to identical rejection for them in the future. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But why should Jesus' disciples rejoice and be glad because they are being treated in the same way as the prophets before them? I think the answer is that the persecuted disciples are part of the same line. They are experiencing the same response. This is the reaction to God's messengers, God's message that we can trace through from Abel, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus, the disciples, and you. How do most people respond when you are trying to tell them something about Jesus? For the most part, people might be indifferent, possibly reject it, and at worst they might disdain or belittle you. 
and the message. You don't actually believe that stuff, do you? Should you be discouraged? Jesus says, no, quite the opposite. What does it mean if people don't want to hear your gospel message? It means validation. Your testimony is true. This is the response that God's message attracts. If you experience rejection, disdain, persecution because of your testimony about Jesus, that is your validation, your commendation. Disciples of Jesus joined the line of messengers throughout history, delivering the same message from a loving God to a lost world. All disciples draw the same rejection, invite the same insults, bear the same disdain, exclusion. The gospel message drives like a sword into the heart of everyone that hears it, and it hurts. People don't like it. The fact is, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you follow him, you will be persecuted. The history of the prophets and the disciples assures us. Jesus' example in his own life assures us. Jesus' words in this beatitude assures us. But do not be discouraged. Rejoice, because this means you are close to God's heart, living and speaking God's message and drawing the same reaction of persecution that validates the message and can be traced back through all of history, even to Adam's, first, Adam's son, Abel. Persecution is the hallmark of the true gospel message, and it's a commendation of the messengers that bring it. It's been this way since the very beginning of the church. The disciples in the early church shared the gospel with the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts 5. And what does it say? They were beaten and flogged for doing so. And verse 41 in Acts 5 says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The disciple Peter, writing to the church years later, would say, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you're going through as if something strange is happening to you. This is the unchanged response throughout history which validates the message. And James opens his letter to the church, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Paul even draws on his experience of persecution in his own life as proof that his message is from God. I want to close by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you can turn there, if you have your Bibles. I want you to see two things in this, in this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to see, number one, that Paul uses persecution as a commendation or confirmation that God is speaking through him. And number two, I want you to see that Paul's life demonstrates what the Beatitudes look like in real life. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way 
How? By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, in the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Paul lists his experience of persecution, afflictions, hardships, labors, sleepless nights, and uses it to commend and confirm his message. Paul says, we are sharing God's message with you. You can be sure of this because of our bad experiences by how people react. But read on. See how Paul's, Paul, Jesus' disciple, reflects the inverted blessings of the Beatitudes. See how Paul's life demonstrates what the Beatitudes look like in real life. If you want an example of how the Beatitudes are applied, look at Paul's life. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says, we are treated as impostors, and yet we are true, as unknown, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. How can Paul rejoice in his sorrow and suffering? How can Jesus, in, how can Jesus inverted blessing in the Beatitudes make sense? How can you rejoice and be glad because of the belittling, disdain, and persecutions that comes from living and sharing the gospel? Because of your hardships, you are commended. Commended as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Commended as joining in the long, unbroken line of God's messengers facing rejection. And stretching back through all of history for as long as God has been calling sinners to himself. So, is that it? We're supposed to jump for joy at rejections and hardships. Great. Jesus sends his disciples to share the good news, knowing they were going to be rejected. So what's the point then? What's God's big idea with all of this? Elijah felt just like this. Lord, they've killed your prophets. I'm the only one left, he said, and they seek my life. But what's God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Romans 11:5 continues here about the Jewish nation. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. What's the point of all this rejection? Well, not everyone rejects God's message. No, no matter how much disdain or rejection there is to the gospel, God is in the business of keeping a remnant. And that's the point. That's the church. That's us. Jesus described the few disciples in his kingdom in contrast with the many the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life 
and those who find it are few. John chapter 1 speaks of Jesus, that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. If that's the end, what's the point? But John goes on, but to all who received him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So do not think about the gospel or your church by normal standards like that of gravity. Jesus blesses his disciples in rejection and hardship. Jesus instructs his disciples to rejoice and be glad in persecution. Why? On what basis should we rejoice? Because we have reward in heaven and because persecution is our commendation, our confirmation that we are his disciples sharing his gospel message. This is the church. The relative few who do receive him, the downtrodden, disdained, persecuted disciples, blessed by Jesus in our hardships to continue to share God's unchanged message. And in case we think too highly of ourselves, as if the select few in any way are deserving or better than anyone else, us weak, feeble, unlikely vessels of God's message are filled only by God's grace. God told his persecuted disciple Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What do the outward and obvious weaknesses of, the, of Jesus' disciples, of Jesus' church, demonstrate? They demonstrate God's character, his strength, his compassion, his love. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he won't snuff out. So blessed are you, Passage Baptist Church, when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven and for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you bless my brothers and sisters here in this room in their persecutions and hardships. I do not pray for persecution in a sadistic way. We don't enjoy rejection. But I pray that Jesus' gospel message would be so evident in the words and lives and love of your disciples in this church that they would know your blessings in the hardships that come as a result. May they be encouraged that these hardships commend and confirm that they are your disciples reaching out to a lost world with your unchanged message of salvation, 
of free righteousness and eternal life given to all who come to Jesus for forgiveness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.